In today's world, so many of us fear getting old. No one wants to lose their teeth, their memory, and most of all, their independence. But with the right care plan, could there be a way to age in a healthy way? We're going to discuss it today with Dr. Ann Wakamia, an outpatient physician practicing both internal and geriatric medicine at Northern Inyo Healthcare District. Dr. Wakamia is going to talk to us about caring for older adults and promoting healthy aging. This is Mountain Medicine, the official podcast of Northern Inyo Healthcare District. My name is Prakash Chandran. So Dr. Wakamiya, thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate your time. You know, I said it a couple times in the introduction, aging in a healthy way. What exactly does that mean? Aging in a healthy way, you know, I think that really is such a personal question. I would say generally aging in a healthy way is being able to do the things that you want to do in your life as you get older and to be able to do those things as long as you can and to be able to spend time with people you love doing the things that you love as long as you can. And so maintaining that quality of life. And for different people, that's going to mean different things. When we put that into medical context, there's a lot of chronic diseases that age is a risk factor for, and diseases tend to come on as we age. And so another aspect of healthy aging is to manage those diseases so that they impact your life as minimally as possible. So I think that what we would call the functional aspect of life, being able to do the things that you want to do, as well as the medical aspects, minimizing any impacts of disease that does come on with age. I think those are two important parts of healthy aging. Yeah. And I hear a lot about this term quality of life. And Mm. I know that that's encompassed of kind of what you're saying, like being able to do the things that you want when you want. Is that also something that you think about when you think about aging in a healthy way? Yes, absolutely. And I think my question when I see patients in the offices is, what aren't you doing that you want to be doing and how can we get you there? And sometimes it's not possible maybe to get all the way there, but we'll try our hardest. And I want people to live as long as they can, as well as they can. And I think both of those are equally as important. So when should a person start thinking about healthy aging for either themselves or a loved one? That is also a great question. I personally think it's never too early to start think about, thinking about healthy aging. And I think the care that we take when we're younger and we're at kind of less risk for disease and we're still in the preventative stages, I think that that is the time to start the process of healthy aging. And I think a lot of that is with lifestyle. So with exercise, with physical activity, with nutrition that we provide ourselves, with the social friendships and social circles that we maintain and kind of help maintain our emotional health. I think all these are really important from early on, I would say. It's never too early to consider these things. Some people might ask, when should I start going to the doctor? Or that might be a question that we get to a little bit later. In terms of thinking about healthy aging in a clinical context in the doctor's office, I would say things to be looking for, it's not too early to monitor your blood pressure, to work with your doctor to occasionally get lipid panels to check your cholesterol uh, and your blood sugar, and also to start cancer screenings at the recommended times. And I would say for a person who is really not having any significant medical problems that they know of, those are things that can be done preventatively to help with healthy aging. Yeah. So, you know, a lot of what you just talked about was helping people as they get older, you know, in their 30s and 40s and thinking about 
ways to start to take care of themselves. But what about people that are in their 80s and 90s? They've been dealt their hand. Maybe they are already dealing with a lot of different medical issues. How should they be thinking about things? So I think kind of coming back to the issue of quality of life, again, we kind of take stock at what's important. And again, we're troubleshooting. So we're figuring out what would this person like to be doing that they're not doing? And how can we get them to be doing that thing? How can we maintain independence as long as we can? And whether a person's goal is to stay in the home or whether they have plans to move, whether it be to another home or to a more supportive environment, I think we're thinking about how do we achieve those goals? I'm also starting to weigh the risks and benefits of everything we do, every medication, every procedure, every move we make when we're thinking about a person's landscape of medical problems and medications are on. Everything we do has both risks and benefits. And so I'm thinking about how what we're doing going to add to and work towards the goals that a person has. What benefits is it going to bring them? And I want to make sure that what we're doing, that they're not going to incur the risks or the harms of what we're doing. And so that really means weighing very carefully medications that we're using and procedures that we decide to move forward with. I also start to think about what is likely to be this person's biggest problem. When I think about that and when I think about what problem rises to the top, that's the problem that we're going to try to manage because I'm thinking about what problem is going to affect this person's quality of life and maybe limit their life the most. And that's what we're going to talk the most about and work on preventing more problems coming up. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. You know, leading up, I guess, to the later years in life, I know you said it's never too early to start thinking about it. And there's so many different facets, right? Like you mentioned, Mm -hmm. you know, there's physical health, mental health, there's uh, specific nutrition, social health, right? Like making sure that socially you're connecting with people still. Mm -hmm. Um, How do you advise uh, people to, I guess, start building a framework around checking in with themselves or their loved ones to make sure that those things are actually tended to as they start to age? I think it it depends a little bit on the stage that one is in. And I think a person who is in the 30 to 40-year-old range is starting to find out when a person is due for cancer screenings and should start getting cancer screenings and maybe having some of that baseline blood work done and maybe connecting with a physician who you might get to know in case you were to have a problem. And then I think as one ages and as maybe that same 30 or 40 year old thinking about one's parents who are aging, I think a common concern would be memory and memory changes. Another common concern might be falls, noting changes in a parent's balance and maybe physical activity. It's really helpful to make sure there's no developing medical cause. My approach is to make sure there's no lab abnormalities, thyroid problems, or other, like a concrete medical problem causing those issues. And then to take kind of a more holistic approach to things like balance, memory, other common problems that come up might be related to urinary or bladder issues, both for men and for women. You know, one of the things that I wanted to address is that sometimes we might have a loved one in our lives that is aging in an unhealthy way. And they're kind of stubborn, right? They don't see all of the signs uh, that they should. And I know for myself, you know, I'm 41, I have an 80 year old dad, 
it's something that I think about a lot, right? Like how do we, mm. how do we be a good support and how do we encourage them in a right. way when they're still very independent and they still want to do their own thing. And sometimes it feels like we know better. It feels like we're like, look, we kind of see you becoming a little bit more fragile. We kind of see mm. those facets that we were talking about that physical nutrition, mental health, these things aren't being cared for. So, you know, it's always like interesting to figure out how to approach them in the right way. Definitely. And I think one aspect of it is sometimes, you know, the person that you're encouraging to come in, they might think that there's nothing to be done about a certain problem. And that's where I really like to sit down and just have a conversation about what the issue is and basically problem solve and troubleshoot. And so that's how I like to hopefully get people to start coming back is that every appointment we're troubleshooting. How can we make life better? What can we do to keep the quality of life or even improve quality of life? It may not be a, a medication. It might be part of the conversation. It might be reassurance. It might be some exercises. And it might just be checking in every every three to six months and making sure we're on track. So I think just taking more of a troubleshooting approach, it can be really helpful and kind of get people engaged that totally. we're trying to problem solve and make things better. And that's the ultimate goal. Yeah. So, you know, you practice both internal and geriatric medicine. And today we're talking about navigating options for care in the later years. Mm. Tell us about like the patients that you see and how they can think about the options for care as they start to age. I think it's really an intimidating topic for a lot of people. As a person ages, it's inevitable that we all lose some of our capabilities. And particularly, I think big ones are mobility, decline in mobility, whether that be physical mobility, the ability to drive, ability to navigate around the house, to move from bed to chair to toilet. Um, those are um, changes that prompt questions of how are we going to get through this? And there's a spectrum of options for extra help. And I think this is another topic that's really difficult between adult children and their parents. Essentially, I guess what we're approaching here is kind of loss of independence, whether that be from a physical mobility perspective or from cognitive change. A lot of people might be really hesitant to use a cane or a walker. However, if somebody is willing to adopt the use of a walker, that might prevent a fall, and that might ultimately allow them to live in their house much longer than yeah. if they were to fall and injure themselves. So I always say you, you got to give a little, but you get a lot. And so by giving up a little bit of independence through things like assistive devices, it can actually enable a person to stay in their home longer. The options for where one is receiving care, most people kind of are starting in their homes. And if it gets to be too much for a person to be at home on their own, meaning they're not able to potentially get around their house or do the things that they need to do, like cook or kind of manage the house, um, there's a couple of different options. One, which is common, a family member could move in with that person and, and help them, or they could have some help coming in, a caregiver, for example, uh, coming in to help them. And that could be anywhere from two hours a week all the way to full-time, 24-hour caregiving. So that would be a person who is remaining in the home. The other kind of places along the spectrum, so if a person is not able to remain in their home, they need a little bit more help 
there's not necessarily somebody who's able to come help them, family member, caregiver. A more supportive environment would be assisted living. And assisted living is often a setup is where a person has their own living space, but there's common areas for meals which are prepared. And there's often a lot of activities. There are maybe buses that will take people shopping or out to the movies. And it can be a pretty social environment. Assisted living are not medical facilities. So that that's one thing to keep in mind is that there are no nurses on site. Uh, at the most, there's a person who's able to give a resident medications and help with giving medication administration, but not with really any nursing care. And we'll contrast that in a second to nursing home care. Yeah. Um, before, before we get into nursing yes. home care, I can personally attest to the fact that my grandmother-in-law went kicking and screaming into assisted mm. living. And it turned out once she got there to be amazing. Like she mm. basically completely transformed as a person. She had her independence still. She created better social circles. She was, I'm telling you, busier than we were uh, on the weekends and during the week. And she even said, I didn't realize that assisted living could be so fun. It's something that I think is so feared. But for her, it really gave her a new lease on life. A lot of people that were, you know, in her age demographic had her similar interests and similar dispositions were able to be together. So I can definitely attest to the value of that assisted living arrangement. And I'm sure you hear that yourself as well, right? Yes, absolutely. That is really common feedback. And so actually kind of one unfortunate thing is we ha we did have an assisted living facility in Bishop that actually closed about a year and a half ago. And so there's currently not assisted living in Bishop where we are. And I think that's been really hard on the community and has kind of made it tough to take out that intermediate option for people. One other thing I just want to point out about assisted living, it's usually not covered by insurance unless somebody has a long-term care insurance that might pay for it, but it's not covered by Medicare or any of the major insurance companies. It's usually out of pocket and usually it runs around three to $4,000 a month. Yeah. Um, so it is an expensive uh, option there. It so is. not everyone can access that for sure. That's right. We're talking about these different options, but we can't talk about them without talking a little bit about cost and who's who's paying for these options, because that often is a driver for where people do end up, whether they are staying in their home or they move to assisted living or even to a nursing home. Yeah, no, um, I'm so glad you brought that up. I do want to have you talk a little bit about nursing homes. Tell us about what they are and what's the difference between that and assisted living. So nursing home is kind of at the other end of the spectrum from a person who's staying at home. The nursing home is a much more clinical environment where the resident's vital signs are monitored and they receive extensive assistance from nurses who are on staff and on site 24 hours a day. A lot of times these residents are more debilitated than people who would be in assisted living. Although I have seen that assisted living is they're offering a lot more services and support to people who do have mobility issues and cognitive issues. And so actually people can stay in assisted living a lot longer, which is, I think, pretty neat. And then back to the nursing home settings, the nursing home is regulated by Medicare and Medicaid. And Medicaid is actually the largest payer for the nursing home. 
I should say there's two parts of nursing home care. There's what we call short-term rehab, which is somebody who's coming into the nursing home following an operation or a hospitalization where they're expected to rehabilitate and return home. And then there's long-term residents of the nursing home who plan to reside in the nursing home indefinitely. The short-term residents of the nursing home, their stays are covered by Medicare for the first 100 days. And the long-term residents of the nursing home, initially, they pay out of pocket for their nursing home room unless they meet the qualifications for Medicaid in which Medicaid will pay for the nursing home room. And this is really important because the nursing home room monthly cost runs are about $10,000, so much more expensive than assisted living. Yeah. Well, yeah. listen, we uh, just as we start to wrap up, I wanted to give you a chance to share anything else that was important to the audience. And maybe as a prompt, I would love for you to maybe give your best advice, like one piece of advice to an audience member that's taking care of their elderly loved one, just anything that you might have them say or do. Sometimes we have ideas about how we want to help our elders, and I think it's just really important that we're asking them what's really important to them and how they want their aging process to be and how they want their lives to look like. And I think if we start with what they want and we propose ways to help them meet their goals um, and support them, I think it makes it a very collaborative process. I think that the message is that we want to support people in aging in, in the way that they would like, and we want to help them achieve their goals and help their lives be the best that they can be in, in according to their values and their hopes and what they like to do and who they want to spend time with. And so I think from a medical perspective, from a support perspective, we need to really ask our loved one what's really important to them and how we can help them keep that central as long as we can. Yeah, I think that's wonderful advice and the perfect place to end. So Dr. Wakamiya, thank you so much for your time. I truly appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. That was Dr. Ann Wakamiya, an outpatient physician practicing both internal and geriatric medicine at Northern Inyo Healthcare District. For more information, you can call 760-873-2602 or visit our website at nih.org. If you found this podcast to be helpful, please share it on your social channels or check out the entire podcast library for topics of interest to you. Thanks again for listening. My name is Prakash Chandran. Be well.